So the cuts have begun. The new British Conservative Liberal government, led by David Cameron and Nick Clegg, has already chopped £60 billion from public spending, despite fears that it may slow down recovery in the longer term. But what bites in the public sector will also have implications for private sector businesses too. The need to sharpen up and refresh business skills in the new global business environment with the tiger economies of China, India and Brazil hard on our heels has never been greater. So where should our business leaders begin? Professor Arnold Demir, director of the Cambridge Judge Business School, says knowledge workers of the future may not respond to traditional management models of command and control. Instead, they need to be seduced. His collaborative leadership model uses community to motivate. Professor Demir. I'm always reminded of the fact that uh, one of my first management gurus I read, and probably in those days we didn't talk about management gurus, but about uh, influential or inspirational people, was uh, Mary Parker Follett, who was actually an um, anthropologist and who had studied um, tribes in Indonesia, if I well remember. And she always defined management as getting things done through a community of people, not by having power over a community of people, but working through people. And I find that that's much more important today to get these problems solved. And that's what I mean by collaborative leadership, getting things done together with other people. Cambridge Judge Business School is at the forefront of the new collaborative leadership approach. It poses a direct challenge to the old command-and-control style of leadership in a past era, says Professor Demare. When I make a distinction between leadership and management, I always say that management is about um, coping with complexity while leadership is coping with change. Uh, we're living in a world where there is an enormous amount of change today, and so there is probably more need for leadership. And so I've been starting to think about what kind of leadership does this world that is confronted with financial crises, a growing number of knowledge workers, more globalization, etc., etc. What kind of leadership do we really need for that? And then when you talk about leadership, you often think about command and control, or the heroic leader, or the charismatic leader. And I find that most of the times that is about getting power over people, trying to master a group of people. And what I find is that the current um, problems that we have in our world require actually a lot more collaboration, working with each other. Michael Kitson of Cambridge Judge Business School says that both the public sector and the private sector create wealth. Some countries like a smaller public sector and some like a bigger public sector. And both sets of countries can be rich. Kitson. They have talked this up a lot and I think it's unfortunate. It's, it's, it's really muddled thinking to suggest that the private sector creates wealth and the public sector doesn't. Um, both contribute to wealth. It's like arguing, for instance, that uh, the private sector, if we have more management consultants, hairdressers and estate agents, that adds to wealth. But in terms of the public sector, if we have more teachers, doctors and nurses, that doesn't add to wealth. That is really muddled thinking. Both the public sector and the private sector add to wealth. It's really up to the electorate to decide what balance they want. Do they want a bigger public, ex public sector with better public, public services or do they want a smaller public sector with higher taxes? And that's really a choice for the electorate. And what we see as we look at other countries, 
Other countries have taken different paths. Some countries like a small public sector, some countries like a big public sector. And both sets of countries can be rich. If we look in Europe, many of the Nordic countries, France and Germany, have bigger public sectors than us and have higher levels of prosperity. If we look at the United States, they have a smaller public sector than us and on many metrics higher prosperity than us. So there, is, there are different contrasts. There are choices that can be made. The lessons from history tell us that a coalition government can work. Kitson again. What we're going to see are bargaining about the, the burden of taxation, increase in taxation, and also about whether we're going to have um, what the extent and the, the location of cutting public expenditure. Those will be areas for negotiation. But what we shouldn't be concerned with, I don't think, is that a coalition government is going to mean in itself an economic crisis. It will not. It shouldn't get into a state of being paranoid about the size of the deficit. Tackling Britain's debt problem has become even more critical as the crisis in the Eurozone and the Greek debt problem has raised awareness of how far the bank balances of some countries have been allowed to slip. Dr Christos Patelis of Cambridge Judge Business School says every crisis is an opportunity. Greece may be the focus of attention now for the Eurozone, but there are lessons for all of us to learn. Austerity is the new buzzword. In this context, I believe that it is an opportunity, an opportunity for specific countries like Greece to realise that in good times they have to make arrangements for when the bad times may come, be more proactive and anticipatory, but also for the EU to realise that there is sufficient interdependence there that everybody goes under if one does. In this particular context, if uh, Greek austerity measures at the moment are going to dramatically influence uh, the prospects of the German economy, because much of the Greek deficit is, the, is Germany's export surplus, and in addition to this, uh, the EU has to put also its house in order with being able to anticipate and take measures to solve problems like this. So exactly as you say, finally, Christos, it's an opportunity to look at things again. Well, it is. All crises are opportunities, and if, as somebody has said before, it's such a pity to miss a great crisis, and we should never miss crises. Dr Christos Patelis says that Greece must confront its own problems, but that ultimately new regulations are needed to take control away from financial institutions such as the hedge funds, and perhaps ultimately there are needed new political structures too. His thoughts echo those of Vince Cable. Well, I am concerned, uh, both because of the need for governments to put their house in order, and I would like, for example, to see uh, Greece addressing its own difficulties, but it is a, mu a much more uh, systemic issue. For example, let me just indicate that uh, the deficits of Greece and countries like Greece are the surpluses of countries like Germany. Uh, also point out that the EU itself has been very lacks in instituting uh, procedures, institutions and uh, uh, mechanisms in place that they are able to deal with this type of crisis because crises do happen. And see, there is the issue of financial regulation. For example, there has been in recent years a lot of talk about financial regulation and still it can be reported in financial journals that major hedge funds can actually 
decide by meeting and having a lunch or a dinner to simultaneously undertake actions that maybe bring may bring currencies and even countries down. So this issue of regulation hasn't been addressed adequately and it seems like we have not learned from the current crisis. That complexity in the global world economies will also require managers to think again about their values and organisational structures. Co-acting with others is becoming much more important within organisations. Professor Demare again. I would say briefly that the, the type of problems we are confronted with today are, have become very complex and very often require responses for from many disciplines. It's not a problem today is not a finance problem or is not a, a marketing problem or is not a problem of uh, energy uh, to go into a different field, but often they're complex interconnected problems that require lots of people to work together uh, to get to a solution. They have to co-act and you co-act, you work together in a community. And it's the community that is enriching, that brings the ideas, that stimulates uh, the creativity. Now, command and control, I'm not going to set it aside. I can very well see that there are moments in life where you want to have command and control. If you're confronted with a disaster, you don't want to think. You just want to get things done. And then in those circumstances, it may well be that the traditional command and control structure by sort of uh, subcontracting your power to somebody else who will take the, le the leadership in those dramatic moments will work. But with the very complex problems, as I said, of today, and with the totally new technology that we have today, actually to work together in social networks or other uh, ways of interacting, I think we can actually work in a, what I call, co-acting, working together. For those starting up businesses, making that leap from a small to a larger enterprise is as fraught with difficulties as ever. Vince Cable's desire to help SMEs is being worked on by Cambridge Judge Business School. Ensuring you have enough capital before you start your new enterprise is essential, as funds from grants and friends can soon dry up. Peter Hiscox is a fellow in entrepreneurship at Cambridge Judge Business School. There is a gap in finding money. In fact, when you look at what it takes to start a new business, there are really three high-level things you need. You need a good idea, you need a great team, but you also need money. Um, and sometimes finding the money seems to be the most difficult part of all. Uh, most of us, when we start new business ventures, uh, use our own money to start off with. Sometimes maybe even beg a bit of friends and family money. But then this often a big gap because we need a lot more money to really grow the business effectively um, and yet uh, maybe in the order of 50,000 100,000 pounds but if we go and talk to venture capital businesses they only want to lend us or invest in us a million pounds or maybe two million this gap uh, is very critical in early business ventures in get, allowing them to get started and grow fast. Um, it's been recognised for some time and it's why uh, governments both national and local have been very keen to develop seed funds to fill this gap between the personal, the entrepreneur's own funds and maybe friends and family money and grant funding which, will, which is effective up to maybe 20, 30, 40, 50,000 pounds uh, and then to fill that gap up to 
a million pounds where you can go and talk to a venture capital firm. The need to innovate, whatever the size of your business and wherever it is located, has never been greater. Hiscox again. If you think about it from an investor's point of view, they're looking for a way to uh, sustain the value of the business. We're looking for businesses that are profitable. Uh, they have to be profitable in order to return the money the investor has put into the business. Um, if they're very profitable, then people are going to try to copy them. Uh, and a patent allows you, gives you protection against that. So investors like patents, but a patent isn't a panacea. It doesn't guarantee your product is going to be successful. It doesn't stop other people copying you. It just allows you to sue them if, it, if they do. And suing them is going to cost you a lot of money. In my book, uh, patents are useful, if expensive, but probably the best prevention against being overtaken by competitors is to keep innovating, keep developing your products faster than the competitors, keep making your products better, uh, and then charging a good margin for them. In this new global business environment, consumers have access to new media, and the movements they create can turn traditional marketing thinking on its head. Ben Barry, a PhD student at Cambridge Judge Business School, conducted new research which shows that women are more likely to purchase a fashion product when they see a model who resembles them. It all began with that Dove campaign, and it's Facebook that is giving these consumer movements a voice. Absolutely. This is all about authenticity, and it's about artifice being very five or very ten years ago. Women today crave authenticity for a variety of reasons, and we're seeing this really taking shape on a grassroots level. We see this explosion of street-style blogs that have photographers roaming city streets all around the world, taking pictures of women of all different ages and sizes and income levels, wearing their regular clothes because they find these regular looks inspiring. And I think it's really interesting because today we either see models that are photoshopped into this unreality or we see celebrities on tabloids with sweat stains everywhere, that these street-style blogs capture one group that still have enough integrity and still enough intrigue to really fire our imaginations. And that's real people. We're seeing this with social networking, Facebook and Twitter, that people are voicing their own opinions about what beauty means to them. On Facebook, there's a group called Beauty Versus Industry, and it features girls posting their photos and writing on their photos why they are beautiful. There's a movement, and right now consumers are light years ahead of executives in the industry who really need to catch up. Dove was a landmark moment because for the first time, on billboards and magazines, women were exposed to an image that looked like them. Never had this been done before in a fashion magazine on a billboard to promote a beauty brand. Others agree. The now famous Domino Pizza case proves how a few disgruntled customers or members of staff can demolish a brand's reputation with just one well-placed YouTube video or Facebook entry. Dr. Omar Marlowe, a university lecturer in marketing and strategy, says new media tools require an immediate response if 
they threaten your reputation. Uh, no, I think you're, you're, you're exactly you're correct. Uh, I think uh, companies have two choices when it comes to we call the online reputation management. Online reputation management really involves uh, protecting your brand from these attacks and also dealing with these uh, crises once they happen. And you really have two choices. And the first choice is should we respond? Should we not respond? And the second choice is if we respond, in what way are we going to be confrontational? Are we going to be defensive? Or are we going to play along in a sense? So we. Have have to be very careful. You're right. It's not often uh, uh, necessary to respond, but we have to have an understanding of what the evidence is suggesting us in terms of what, re what a response should be. And my advice to any company dealing with these, uh, these potential threats, whether uh, it's already happened or whether it could happen, is to have someone who has the responsibility for monitoring these things. So we need to appoint someone who is really about online reputation management. So we, in the same way as we have someone in sales, in marketing, in distribution, we need someone who's out there actually getting a feeling for what is going on and raising the red flag when things happen. Mm -hmm.